Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Kansas City jazz pianist Roger Wilder. Over the course of our interview, we discussed his music roots with his family in Rochester, New York. Getting a degree at the University of Miami and spending some time down there before coming back to New York. From there, he made his way to Kansas City in 2000 and has been very active in a busy Kansas City scene. We discuss new recordings on the horizon for 2016, why he loves jazz so much, and many more things. Please dig this interview, my friends. Roger, thanks for taking a little time out to talk with me today. I appreciate it. No problem. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right in here. I just saw you at the Blue Room a few weeks ago. Give me an idea of kind of activity that's going on in your world today. This morning I went out and played for a couple hours for elementary school dance classes. And this afternoon I'm going to rehearse with Angela Hagenbach, with whom I'm recording a CD. This evening I'm going to be in the studio uh, recording with the People's Liberation Big Band. That's a snapshot of my, my day today. As far as regular gigs, what kind of regular uh, gigs do you have going on around town? I only have two regular gigs, which are actually monthly gigs. I play every first Wednesday at Chaz with Seth Lee, and I play every third Wednesday currently at Prohibition Hall with the Broadway Jazz Orchestra. Let me ask you this. Your latest CD, 2013 CD, Stretch, Talk to me about that album a little bit, about how it came about, kind of the creative forces that went into it. It's the only CD I've ever put out as a leader, so it was, I guess, a long time in coming. I remember being involved in some CD projects in the early 90s when it first became apparent to me and probably to a lot of people that you could actually produce your own CD and you didn't need a record label anymore uh, once you had people like disc makers and stuff offering that service. And ever since then, I was thinking, no, one of these days I ought to put out a CD of my own stuff. You know, there's always other stuff going on in my life, health issues, moving to different cities, having babies and all that. And finally, uh, I had fewer and fewer excuses as <laughs> over the years leading up to the CD for procrastinating anymore. So I finally did it. And I was just really wanting to have something on record is like, this is my music. You know, if I drop dead tomorrow, I'll leave behind something besides this was a guy who was a sideman on some CDs. But So my own tunes and the tunes that I would pick to be on a CD instead of some other person picking. So let's go back to the beginning of your life here. You grow up in Rochester, New York. What was it about your childhood that gave you this love of jazz? Initially, the love of music was from my mostly my dad and my big sister and big brother. My mom is actually also a really talented musician with perfect pitch, but she didn't really, I didn't see her do much music. She was busy being a mom. But yeah, my dad played piano. He would come home from work and after supper, he'd often sit down and play for half an hour, an hour, you know, for his own enjoyment. It was learning, learning pieces. And so, that's a role model that most kids taking piano lessons don't have, you know, a parent who actually enjoys music. So that was a big part of it. My big sister also took piano lessons, so, you know, something was like, oh, okay, this person I look up to, two people that I look up to are playing piano. And my brother was a drummer, and he was the one 
who ended up, by chance, studying drums with a jazz guy, a guy named Vinny Ruggiero. Vinny got him into jazz, and then my brother, Chris, he got me into jazz. So that's how it started. So by the time I was 10 or 11, I was starting to listen to a lot of Art Blakey and Miles Davis and Coltrane and stuff like that. So was there a particular album growing up that just kind of blew your mind that was like, wow, this is it? Uh, No, I don't think so. I mean, the early one that I remember, which may have been the first one my brother brought home, like his teacher would lend him LPs. And so my my brother brought home uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers on Columbia with Donald Byrd which is still one of my favorite albums of the Jazz Messengers, which is is a great group. And and all that, all that kind of stuff is what I was listening to, a lot of that hard bop from New York from that era, a lot of Blue Note records and a lot of that stuff is that kind of, that kind of style of hard-hitting music. It's funny, a lot of people say that Kind of Blue was the first record that got them into jazz but the first time I heard kind of blue I was actually I didn't dig it <laughs> I was I was I wanted something with a heavier beat than Jimmy Cobb so I actually was gonna take it back or you know I was gonna trade it in at the used record store and my brother said like oh I'll trade you for it and that that was when I knew okay well this must be good because he wouldn't say that Otherwise, so I'm going to keep it. <laughs> I still have that LP to this day. That's a great story, man. So as a child, you started out on the piano and then started out on the trombone. How did learning both of those instruments help your music brain? Well, piano is great because you can really see music theory and harmony on the piano on better than any other instrument. So that was very helpful, being able to work on the piano and trombone was helpful just because it's a melodic instrument and uh I'm a little I don't know if it was because of the trombone or not but I I'm somebody who's maybe a little more picky about melodic lines in jazz right hand lines for pianists it would be you know there's a lot of really good pianists out there whose right hand lines aren't quite satisfactory to me. And I don't know if it had something to do with playing a, an instrument that was just melody. But for a while there, trombone was my main instrument for, I don't know, about three years. And so I was heavily into just playing, you know, jazz solos with one note at a time. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I didn't ever have a specific thing that I wanted to be. But when I was in high school, I became more and more interested in being a jazz musician. And there was always this giant question mark of whether or not I really could ever make it as a musician, whether that was even possible. My brother started playing drums professionally in high school. That was when that became apparent to me. It's like, okay, real people can actually be professional musicians. Here's a person that I know that's just a normal person who's, good enough to play and get paid and maybe I could do that too but even when I was a senior in high school I remember my English teacher asking class well let's see a show of hands how many people 
are considering a career in the arts and nobody, including me, raised their hand because I still was kind of like, I don't know if I could do that. You know, I was kind of nervous and uncertain. You go on to study jazz through undergraduate camps at the Eastman School of Music and then you study privately. What what was that growth experience like for you? The jazz camps at the Eastman School, they had like month-long jazz camps. Like most of them, most jazz camps are just a, a, a week. I was lucky enough to live in a city where you could take the bus to the jazz camp every day for a month and learn a whole lot of stuff. I guess I went two times. I don't remember exactly. The first time was probably after my freshman year of high school. And I didn't really have a whole lot together at that point. I'd been listening to jazz, and I kind of knew a lot of jazz names and had good ears, but I didn't really, wasn't playing that much at that time. And then I went back a couple years later, and that, that by then I had progressed a little bit, and I was able to see, like, well, you know, I've, I'm as good a player as a lot of these guys. The second time around, it it was maybe an encouragement, and it was a lot of fun for me, too, because there was no jazz band in my high school. I didn't have any friends other than my brother who were into jazz. So it was nice to just be around other kids who were into jazz, one of whom is a lifelong friend, uh, Rob Sheffs. I met him at Eastman Jazz Camp, and uh, we've been in touch ever since. So you move on to the University of Miami at 82, and you switch from trombone to the piano full-time. Why did that switch happen? When I was in high school, uh, my back started really bothering me, and the thing that bothered me the most was playing piano. And it got to where I really wasn't able to practice very much at the piano, but playing trombone didn't hurt my back, so I just said, like, all right, well, I guess I'm a trombonist now. And then once uh, I was a freshman in, at University of Miami, for whatever reason, my back started bothering me less and less to the point where I was playing piano more and more. And I was pretty busy with, you know, school. And also I was pretty involved in the church that I was going to there. So playing, keeping two instruments going was kind of a tall order. So felt like I needed to make a choice, and it was not an easy choice, but I gave up the trombone at that point. So along the way, you get your Bachelor of Music in Music Engineering Technology. What did you learn in the classroom about jazz and music? Well, I was lucky enough to have a little extra room for more classes outside of the engineering uh, degree. But the Music Engineering degree is a a bachelor's of music. So there were, you know, I had to take all the kind of core music classes, which were good, music theory and history, music history and stuff like that. It was all coming from a classical perspective. And I had to take lessons, which of course is very helpful. But then I also got to be in jazz improv, which was very, you know, which is not required as in the major, but was very helpful. There's a guy, Witt Seidner, Seidner, who was the head of the jazz program, who was uh, very helpful in that. He's great at explaining music theory. So that was very helpful, and I got to play in some of the jazz bands. That was really cool. And uh, and then I also got to learn a little bit about engineering. Actually, I learned a lot about engineering, but I didn't really apply it 
I didn't, you know, you have to put in a lot of hours being an engineer to really become skilled at that. And I wasn't as passionate about that as I was about playing. So I was, I was pretty good at using the equipment there at school and did some good recordings and such. But I mostly was, once I, once I got out of school, I kind of never looked back. I just got into playing. That's, that leads into my next question. You get out of school, you get married, you teach at Miami Dade, and you play it all over the place. What were those years in Miami after school for you like? Um, well, at first it was kind of scary because, you know, I wasn't one of these people like all these guys from UMKC who were playing gigs all over town when they're still in college. Yeah, I didn't play any gigs when I was in college. I was still just a student and not really into the, you know, in the scene, so to speak. So after I graduated, it was kind of scary at first. Like, what am I going to do here? How am I going to make money? And I took a few different day gigs to uh, support myself. Once I had that going after a few months after graduation, then, then life started getting more fun, you know, and I... I had I had some money. I was unattached, and I was able to go out to the clubs and listen to the guys and get to know the players. And over time, you know, just became one of the guys. Like that's what you do. <laughs> yeah. Jazz musicians do. You just hang around other jazz musicians, and after a while, you're getting gigs and playing around town. So it was a lot of fun. There were there were a lot of great players in Miami. There were not a lot of clubs, but there were enough that you could do some playing, you know, get some gigs. So you go from, you go back to New York from 95 to 2000, Austin New York. Talk, talk about the migration from being in Florida for that long to going back home to New York and what transpired in that five-year window? My wife in particular was not too keen on Miami. I mean, I probably would have, if I was single, I probably would still be there now. I don't know. <laughs> um, but she didn't, she didn't really like Miami as a uh, as a uh, permanent residence. We talked actually about moving to Paris. We mostly decided, you know, she wa- she really wanted to go back to the Midwest. She's from Western Kansas, and we kind of made a deal that, which is a weird deal that I don't know that anybody else does this, but we made a deal that we would move to New York, which is, you know, this source of my musical world, you know, I mean, that like 80 to 90 percent of all my favorite jazz records were New York people. And I've, I'd always, you know, Rochester is over 300 miles from New York City, so there, there wasn't any commuting from Rochester to New York City. <laughs> we moved to, we, we made a deal, we'd live at, in New York for five years or, or near New York City. And then we'd move to the Midwest. At that time, we were thinking most likely Chicago. But so that's what we did, and uh, it was cool. I got to you know see firsthand the New York scene and get to play with a few of the players and get to play in some of the clubs. But um, mostly, I was kind of an outsider. You know, I was li- we were living an hour north of the city, and uh, the more we started having babies and stuff, the less hanging out in Manhattan I was doing. You know, but yeah. I did. It was a great experience, and I'm glad I got to do it. What ultimately brought you to Kansas City? Um, I'd have to credit the Jazz Ambassadors. Uh, 
maybe more than anybody, because, you know, as we're considering moving to the Midwest, the only Midwestern city other than, I guess, Detroit that anybody talked about having a strong jazz scene was Chicago. My wife, you know, we didn't have a computer. This is the 90s. But at work, she'd go online and look around at different cities for jazz, and she was looking at Kansas City, and the jazz ambassadors had a few things up there from Jazz Ambassadors Magazine, I guess it probably was. She printed out some of that stuff and brought it home to show me, and I said, like, wow, you know, this this sounds pretty good. We should check it out. And so we came out and visited, and I went around to the clubs and heard the guys playing and noted that there were at least five regular jazz clubs in town that had pianos, which maybe grand pianos, no less, which is not what I was seeing a lot of in upstate New York. And there were guys who play, you know, so it was like, well, there's places to play and people to play with. So this seems like a a good thing. We should, we should move to Kansas City. And she was thrilled because she's now half a day's drive from her mom and uh, her own childhood home. Right. worked out great in Kansas City. It's been fantastic, and the scene's just getting better and better as the years go by. By the time you get to Kansas City, you've had a good snapshot of the Miami scene and the New York scene. What was the big thing that was either similar or different about Kansas City to those two locales? Well, first of all, it was easier to get gigs here. I mean, <laughs> that's that's one thing that I should say, you know. Um, Miami, like I said before, there weren't a lot of clubs in Miami. I mean, there were times where there really wasn't any single dedicated jazz club in all of Miami, you know, which is obviously far bigger than Kansas City. Plus, it's like, you know, married to Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach. I mean, it's just a continuous, you know, development all along the coast there. And you'd think with all those people, many of whom are ex-New Yorkers, You'd think there'd be some clubs that could sustain themselves, but most of the clubs there, they'd kind of, they wouldn't last all that long. Some of them, you know, there'd, sometimes there'd be one or two really good clubs, but sometimes there'd be zero. Interesting. Um, so that's one difference. Uh, another difference, I guess, musically, is that Kansas City was less New York-centric than I am, and that New York and Miami were, you know, so that was... That was something different for me, like there's start over again. Kansas City has kind of got one foot in on the East Coast and one foot in the West Coast as far as jazz is concerned. So that was eye-opening, and I got to experience more of the uh, West Coast kind of perspective from different people and players. I think with the advent of the UMKC program, it's become more and more tilted toward New York. That's Bobby's, you know, Bobby Watson's thing, and a lot of the students coming out of there, I think they're probably more New York-based, which is a little more uh, where I'm coming from. Of course, in New York City, you know, I would have to say, I mean, a lot of people say, you know, we've got players here in Kansas City that are as good as anywhere. And I can't help, you know, for the record, just saying, like, well, there's a lot of real major, major jazz legends in New York City that are actually even better than the musicians here in Kansas City who are great, but they're, they're, uh, I mean, there's just some amazing players in New York, uh, you know, and there's just a, a million of them. I mean, every day there's more of them moving there. You could never know 
everybody, all the great players in New York. When you got to Kansas City, how long did it take for you to really leap in uh, two feet in the water and get going? Didn't take long at all. It was here in July, and by September, I was I had a lot of gigs. The scene here was very welcoming, and there were enough clubs and enough openings that it didn't take long. Most places, you know, everybody has their regular pianist before you get there, so you're going to have to wait in line for somehow some kind of holes to open up somehow. But uh didn't take long here at all. I'm pretty sure the first 12 months I lived here, I probably had more gigs than the last 12 months I was in New York. So, obviously, as someone that's loved jazz for a long time and even before coming to Kansas City, you knew about what went on here from a historical standpoint. But once you got here, what what was the most interesting thing historically about Kansas City, the whole lore of 18 and Vine and everything this town's gone through? What What intrigued you the most? I think it would be probably the the foundation. Not that I've ever been a regular at the foundation because I'm really a morning person, and by morning I don't mean three in the morning. You know? <laughs> so it's always been like too late of a hang. But it's just cool every time I go in there just thinking like, wow, Bird and Miles and Coltrane and Basie and and McShann and all these people played in this very building, you know, I mean, wow. Yeah. And even just walking downtown, just thinking like, wow, you know, Bird and Basie and Lester Young, they, they probably walked down the same street, looked at the same building I'm looking at right now. I mean, that was just really cool to me from a historical perspective, just to think, wow, these heroes of mine, this is where they hung out. I I mean, I experienced the same thing in New York City, definitely here in Kansas City, too. If Kansas City was to go in on a wellness check, how is our jazz scene doing? What kind of marks would we get? Uh, well, we get an A-plus for just the vibe, which has been commented on all the time. I always hear people mentioning it, and, and I've witnessed it myself, you know, just the vibe among the players is much more of a happy family kind of vibe than most places where it's a little more dark and there's more factions and cliques. And, you know, people here are very supportive, incredibly supportive. You know, when a new person comes to town, they're they're met with welcoming arms as opposed to with suspicion and like, oh, great, you know, here comes another pianist. Now, now he's going to take all my gigs. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's an understandable reaction, but that's not the way people are here in Kansas City. It's a much happier vibe. A plus for vibe um, uh, and A for number of jazz clubs per capita. You know, you go around in most cities in, in the States, just about all of them, you know, would not be able to have this many nights of jazz where people are out working. So that's that's a huge thing. And, and musicians visiting from out of town comment, comment on that a lot, too. You know, obviously New York has a whole bunch of clubs, but, you know, considering how many musicians there are, it's not that easy to get a gig. 
yeah in New York you know compared to here um uh and the players are really good and i in my mind you know they're better now than they were 10 years ago i mean i definitely credit Bobby Watson for a lot of that and the gen, the program at UMKC i think that has a lot to do with it cuz a lot of these great players out of there out here are graduated from there there's a lot of great players a lot of places to play and a really happy vibe among the uh, jazz populace. And there are a lot of good fans out there, too. You know, I don't know how that part of it compares to other cities. That's hard to measure for me, but there are a lot of supportive fans and people are going out and supporting live music, and that's fantastic, too. Yeah. So speaking of fans and live gigs and being around for a long time, do you have a good story safe for radio? a good solid jazz story from the live annals of Kansas City jazz from your perspective? My favorite tale of two cities was, this was probably in August or September of 2000. I had moved here recently. I remember it was definitely a hot summer night. I was playing on the Penguin Court with the Boulevard Band. And, uh, I actually, I had, so I guess that gig went from five to eight. I had a gig over at the Fairmont right around the corner right after that. So I was loading all my keyboard and my amp and everything in the car. And I, I left my amplifiers sitting on this, like right on the edge of the sidewalk, basically, Right in the you know in the penguin court, right in the heart of the plaza on a on a summer night with just hundreds of people coming and going all over the place, places teeming with pedestrian traffic. And uh, yeah, I I went and played the gig at the uh, Fairmont. I think it might have been a nine to one gig. And and I got out of the gig at one o'clock, and I go sit in my car, and I look over at my passenger seat and say like, wait, why isn't my amp on my passenger seat? I'm like, oh no, I left my app at the gig, so I'm calling the guys, you know, from the gig, and nobody's seen my app, nobody knows anything about it, but somebody says, well, why, you should call Plaza Security and just see if maybe somehow they ended up with it. And sure enough, I called Plaza Security, and some guy said, yeah, around 10 or 11, I, I'd seen that amp a few too many times, and I said, this doesn't look right, so I brought it in, so I went down and picked up my amp, and that's just kind of my my live music story about Kansas City that just made me say, "Wow, this place is pretty awesome." You know, I mean, yeah. most places. My my other story that goes along with that was shortly after I moved to New York, I went out to to a gig, or not to a gig, not to play, but to hear some music, and parked my car in Manhattan, forgetting that my amplifier was in the trunk. And uh, went out and heard some live music, and sure enough, somebody stole my amp out of my trunk. <laughs> wow! In, in New York, that's my tale of two cities. You know, yeah. like, here I come to Kansas City, and I'm just like begging people to steal my amp, and they won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so let me ask you a general question here: Why do you love jazz? That's that's a, that's a hard one to answer. I definitely didn't grow up with jazz. You know, it wasn't until I was kind of adolescent that I even had any clue about what jazz is. It gives me, compared to pop music, 
which I like a lot of pop music too, but jazz, I guess, gave me a lot more. I felt like it was it gave me a lot more to sink my teeth into. I don't know if it's from an intellectual standpoint or it's just more complex, I guess. I really enjoy the complexity of it. Um, I also enjoy the passion of it and the groove of it. But I guess you have a lot of passion and groove in all kinds of music. Uh, but as far as non-classical music, I guess, when it comes to complexity, jazz is pretty high up there among styles of music. But without losing the groove and without losing the passion, that's probably uh, what attracts me to jazz, I guess. So let me ask you this. You got any album? You mentioned an album uh, at the beginning of the interview that you had been working on, but can you give me kind of a more official answer to any recordings that might be on the horizon that the public can get their hands on? Well, as I mentioned, I'm, I've been recording with Angela Hagenbach. She's putting out a Jazz Alice CD, and that's all music of John Coltrane with uh, words by Lewis Carroll set to the music. And uh, Angela did a fantastic job of putting all this Lewis Carroll stuff from Alice in Wonderland into Coltrane's music and setting it to Coltrane's music. So that's that's going to be a good CD. It's got uh, Brian Stever and Zach Beeson and Steve Lambert and Lonnie McFadden and Angela Hagenbach is the main voice, of course. And she's also going to have Pamela Watson and Brian Hicks and... I know there's more singers, but I'm not sure exactly who, because they, as of now, haven't put down the vocal tracks yet. I mentioned also I'm in the studio with People's Liberation Big Band tonight, and uh, we're putting out our third CD, I think this would qualify as. And uh, that's going to be great. It's, I think, all original music. Well, no, it's not all original music, but some, but all original arrangements, anyway. Uh and almost all original compositions. Stuff is really complicated and wild and crazy and hard, and and uh, that'll be great. I should mention, too, like talking about the club scene, that the record bar was what really gave life to that whole band, you know, having a place to play once a month that made people want to rehearse and write and and just perform and get this stuff to where we could kind of play it. <laughs> so that that's that's gonna be a good record. Um yeah. and Stan Kessler's got a C D that should be out this year. It's got uh maybe three of his groups, maybe even four. Um and so I'm involved in some of that. Uh Parallax is gonna be on that C D. That should be a good C D. So those three are the, the three that I know of that are yet to come out. Let me ask you this. Everybody has their perception of who Roger is. Your family does, your friends do, the fans in the crowd do, but who do you think you are? Wow, that's, that's a hard question. I guess everybody kind of wears a bunch of different hats. Like you say, my family has this one perception, and that's true. They know me the best, you know, what I'm like. Fans know me is by what I play, and so that's a big part of who I am. Another hat that I haven't mentioned is being a Christian and going to church, and uh, so the, all the people at church have another perception of who I might be. Those are the three main hats that I think of as, as who I am, a pianist and a, just a person with a family and 
person who goes to church, so the three things. Yeah, I think you answered it. I think that sums it up. Hey, Roger, thank you for taking some time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Enjoyable. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over America, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Roger for his contribution to a thriving KC scene and all that music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.